you really do need to dig in and understand why the numbers coming out of the spreadsheet are doing what they're doing. I don't really like underwriting. It's never going to be my superpower, but you're making massive decisions based on what's coming out of that spreadsheet. You better be able to understand the nuts and bolts in it. So I went home and took this little rock deal and kept working with it, kept making sure, because what was coming out of it was not making any sense. I was getting 30, 40% returns. And I thought wow. I've got to have made errors in here. And I, I started doing research, hunting it down, talked to the broker, kept running it through. I kept, this is legit. I sent it to my friend. I said, can you look over this? And he said, yes, you've done this correctly. And he was not interested in investing in it. He said, because when you start getting over 20 to 30% returns on these things, you got to ask what's wrong with the property. Um, is it a class D? Is it falling down? Like, why is it so cheap? Welcome to Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Talee, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here is your host, Annette Talee. Welcome to another episode of Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Talee, and my guest today is Emma Powell. Welcome, Emma. Hey, thanks for having me, Annette. I'm excited super excited to have you. I've been following on, uh, you on Facebook for a while and I love watching your family uh, do real estate. So let me tell you guys a little bit about Emma. She's the owner and operator of High Rise Group along with her husband of 23 years, Troy Powell, acquiring 92 units in their first 18 months. That's amazing. They live in Salt Lake City, Utah after 20 years in Austin, Texas and are parents of six homeschool children ages 22 to eight. Recently, she has 66 more units under contract in a new development high rise in downtown, downtown Salt Lake Opportunity Zone. Amazing. You are also a, a, a real estate photographer, correct? I was in Austin for 10 years before we relocated. Um, that's probably what got me into real estate after we after we moved, I didn't want to restart that business. It's just, it's a, a lot of work. And because I was already kind of into real estate at that point, I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna switch sides here. Right. So th that was like my next question. I want to know your personal story of how you started in, in real estate. Um, well, I think I kind of came at it from a couple of different directions. So um, growing up, I always kind of felt like your house was your most important asset. You'd hear that, you know, it's the key to the American dream. And my parents uh, would always sell their houses on a lease purchase or a lease option. I didn't really know what that was when I was a kid, but I remember um, hearing about it and it was a way for them to have a little bit of extra income instead of just selling the house outright. Um, but it was a little bit stressful for them because sometimes the people wouldn't pay the mortgage and my parents didn't have the right emergency fund. So um, a couple of years ago, right when I first started doing this, I asked my dad about that. And, and he told me the story behind it and, and they didn't always do it. And it was a little bit stressful. And sometimes they didn't do it the right way. Cause it just didn't have the same resources back then that we do with the information access. And so um, when I was growing up, I just thought, always thought, you know, you get a house, you invest well in it. You, when you move out, you do a seller financing or something. So that was just normal. I, that was a goal when we first got married buy a house. And so when we, uh, moved to Austin. Uh, I had a newborn, my first baby and no job. And my husband was working and we had just relocated. So that became my full-time job was to figure out how to buy a house. And I hounded new neighborhoods, new developments, 
I hounded real estate agents until I found somebody who could get us into the situation that was good. So we hooked up with this real estate agent who got us some down payment assistance from the county. So we ended up doing zero down on that first house. It was brand new construction. And we all know that appreciates like gangbusters, right? Mm -hmm. So we got into there. We made about $35,000 off that first house, lived in it for a couple of years, moved into the next one. I said, this is how you make money in real estate. It's just like changing jobs and getting a raise. You're not going to get that cost of living increase if you stay in the same job for too long. So we got to switch houses. So it's a version of house hacking, even though we weren't renting out a space and we weren't doing a live and flip, we were buying this new construction. We're the first one in the neighborhood. We're putting up with trash. We're putting up with empty lots and weeds and nails in our tires and all the construction workers with their loud music and their trucks parked all over the streets. I mean, that is basically what you're putting up with in a brand new neighborhood. You're the first one in there, you're getting the best price, sometimes even at cost, because they're just trying to move those houses early on. So we did it again, but we were the first people in a brand new neighborhood, the very first people to ever even sign a contract on that house in a master plan development um, just outside of Austin. And then 2008 happened. And so we were actually really lucky because we bought that house right. Uh, we were never upside down on that mortgage. And so we could have, if he had lost his job, we could have walked away from that house and not had to have a short sale. So even though we were lucky that we weathered that without getting laid off, we could have gotten laid off and would not have, um, would not have had a foreclosure or short sale. So even though we didn't make any money off that house because the value went up and then it obviously dropped, um, we ended up selling that house in 2011. We made enough on it to pay the realtors um, and walked away with our original $35,000 that we put into it. Um, so we bought a house in Kyle, Texas, um, which was on four acres. It was a total gutter. We knew that we were going to force appreciation into this by remodeling it ourselves because we couldn't find uh, a neighborhood we wanted to live in that had some acreage. I wanted a little farm, some goats, chickens, you know, the homesteading life. And uh, so we just completely remodeled that house, lived in it for about a year and a half to two years of the remodel, um, had my sixth baby, uh, unplanned pregnancy, and he got laid off the month after we bought that house. So we, no. we made it through 2008, 2009. Um, and then the unplanned last pregnancy and then the layoff. So um, we just tried to finish the house as fast as we could. And we knew that that was where all of our cash was, was in this house. We'd been saving up for 2008, 2009, Casey got laid off, just piling up money, working part-time. Um, and then in, when he made it through the layoff, we're like, let's go fix the house with all this cash that we piled up. And then he got laid off. We're like, oh, great. So um, he ended up getting a new job right away, um, that part-time job that he had. Uh, ended up picking him up full-time. Um, so we finished that house and then he got laid off again in 2017. And that was a scary day. He came home and he said, you know, I'm, I lost my job. And uh, I knew as a photographer, I was doing real estate during the week and weddings on the weekend. I wasn't making enough money to really float the ship. And um, we were going to have to dip into our savings and everything I was making. I had just graduated college. So I started looking for a full-time job. I was doing some part-time work for the Austin rugby team as their marketing uh, social media content manager. And even that I just, it wasn't, it just wasn't enough. Right. And so I told him, I said, I am so sorry that I put you in this position to be the, really the sole income earner as a father of six children. And I just felt like, even though I was working and building a business, it just wasn't enough. And it wasn't taking the pressure and the stress off of his shoulders. And I said to him, 
I will never let this happen again. I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I was never going to get us ourselves into that position again. And so he quickly found a job uh, in Salt Lake and we packed up the kids and we moved, we sold that house and made a, you know, a bunch of money off of it. Cause again, you remodel it, you force that appreciation. Um, and that's how you make money in real estate. So that was kind of, again, a little bit of a house hack. Um, so we moved to Salt Lake and I didn't want to restart that photography business. I was getting older. The cameras hurt my hands. It was a lot of hustle. And I just didn't really feel like the market here was ready for professional photography, really DIY. Most people are doing their own stuff. I just, I just didn't want to grind through that. Um, and so I started thinking, maybe I'll start a marketing consulting. Um, maybe I'll work for the rugby team in Salt Lake or the league and just wasn't finding anything. And so I started showing up to business networking events and stumbled across some real estate investor ones. And I was like, I've always wanted to have rental houses. I've always wanted to do some flips. We did that live in flip. Like this is, this is what I want to do. So I took all that cash that we made off of that house. And I said, you can do a minimum down payment on our personal home that we bought in Salt Lake. We have to buy a house you can afford on your income with this tiny down payment. And the rest of it I'm taking to go start a real estate business. So I bought um, a few things from wholesalers, got a couple of rentals. Um, but I knew I wanted to go commercial because I started going to the local RIA meetings and they were doing development, buying apartment complexes and storage units. And I was like, sweet, that's what I want to do. We actually had a neighbor back in Austin who owned a bunch of storage units. And we always thought that sounded great, but we never, we just never really took the plunge. He would have taught us, he would have helped us. And we totally wasted that opportunity. Um, so we decided that that's what we were going to do is go commercial. And so all that whole that whole first year when I was learning how to do it, I was just waiting for that first commercial deal, figuring it out. And then a lady in the RIA was selling her apartment complex. And I was like, I'll, I'll buy it. So ran the numbers. I didn't know what I was doing. Asked for some help to run the numbers from a, another guy in the RIA. He knew how to do that. And uh, he came back and he said, this is a pretty good deal. I'd love to partner on it. And I think I can raise the capital for it. I said, sure, let's, let's go do it. I don't know how to raise capital. So, um, he went out and he did that and we got the thing closed and that was a 50 units. We closed earlier this year and we have about 30 units uh, renovated at this point and all the um, exterior projects are yeah, maybe about halfway done. So that was the first commercial deal that I bought. And then the one that I wanted to talk to you about is the second one that I bought, the one that we just closed on in June. The Deal. Right, so let's talk about the deal. Tell me about the deal. Uh, what type of asset and the location? So it is uh, two apartment complexes. It's a 16 unit and an 18 unit. It's in Little Rock, Arkansas. Wow, so it's not local to you. No, the one that we bought, the 50 unit is just across the border in Idaho. So it's only about two and a half hours for me. And my husband grew up in Idaho. So I felt like that's like my backyard. And so I was glad I got to kind of practice and learn how to do this on an asset that was really nearby. Um, but this deal in Little Rock was so good that I felt like I could pull it off, even though I wasn't, it wasn't really near, nearby to me. So, but right. I don't think I would have done that for my first one. Okay. So how did you find this deal? Um, well, my oldest daughter uh, used to live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I really like that market. So I had hooked up with some brokers and, 
and some uh, on some Facebook groups and things looking for um, some commercial property and multifamily in Raleigh. And so a broker there and I met and uh, she sent me this deal in Little Rock, which I was not looking in Little Rock at all, but they had um, gotten it under contract and were actually going to wholesale it. And um, it came into my inbox and I ignored it. It didn't fit my, my criteria, but I remembered um, a, another lady that I met at Aria who said that she wanted to invest in Arkansas in commercial property. And I knew that um, she had capital and she had access to people with capital. And I said, hey, let me, uh, I forwarded this deal. And I said, this might be up your alley. And she said, I don't really know what I'm looking at here. So, um, so I said, well, let me, let me, let's get together and I'll teach you how to underwrite these types of deals. I wasn't, still wasn't very good at it at that point, but I knew um, I had done the deal and I'd spent hours learning to underwrite it with my partner. And I knew that I could at least teach her the basics. And so we got together at a coffee shop and I pulled out my laptop, opened up the deal. It had been sitting there for a week or two already. So, you know, usually it's just garbage, right? It was just going to be a practice run. Um, and so we started running through it and I started looking at it with her and I thought, this still looks pretty good. Like these numbers that it's putting up are, are impressive returns here. Um, and I, so I asked her, I said, well, what is it that you like about Little Rock and Arkansas? And she says, well, I don't really know. I've just been hearing about it on podcasts and things that it's a great place to invest. And I said, well, um, so you're going to invest there? I said, didn't you have a family member or something that she says, oh no, that's Alabama. And I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding. <laughs> I got Arkansas and Alabama mixed up and you don't actually want to invest in Arkansas. She said, no, I'd invest in Arkansas. She says, let me see what I can do. Maybe somebody I know who wants to partner on this one. And she was unsuccessful with, with getting anybody on board with that one. So I kept, I took it back home and I just kept kind of crunching it through my spreadsheet. By then I had a good spreadsheet, not like a stupid homemade one. I bought a nice one and, and, um, and learned how to use it and, and stop breaking it and making errors. I spent a lot of time messing with that spreadsheet and learning how to learn how to get stuff plugged in and, and understand the numbers that were coming out. I think that's a mistake. A lot of people make, they'll buy a spreadsheet. They think they can just plug numbers in and whatever spits out. I've had people send me spreadsheets on deals they want to partner on and they've hard coded over the formula cells. So they're getting like 18% returns. And I'm looking like, this doesn't make sense why the returns would be so high. So I'll comb through it. And it turns out they've hard coded over formulas and, and the numbers that are being spit out don't even match the inputs because they think they can just pop it into a spreadsheet and that's all. Um, and so I took all those questions and back to the seller and, and just started answering all of them. Um, and when I was satisfied that what we were dealing with is just a seller who had picked him up in a portfolio and was just selling them off individually because he had another project he wanted to put the money on was just selling them what he paid for them. So I was getting portfolio prices without having to buy the whole portfolio. And I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. And they were rough properties. Um, they're definitely class D properties, but they were in a class C area. I will not buy a property in a class D area. I can't fix that, but I can take a property and raise it up to the level of the surrounding properties. That is not even to me, it's not that difficult. So I don't mind class D properties as long as I can control the class of the property. You're not in charge of the area. You're not in charge of the neighborhood. You're only in charge of your building. So if the neighborhood's better than what you've got, go for it. Um, 
I did have a construction management experience from the house that we remodeled from the new construction houses that we had bought and also from the 50 units. So I wouldn't recommend doing that if you've never done any construction and you don't know the difference between, you know, drywall and sheetrock. There's no difference <laughs> between those two things. So if you don't know anything about construction, uh, maybe not the best idea for your first project. Um, but like I said, this is like my fifth or sixth project at this point. I've done a couple of rehabs, you know, single families and duplexes and things like that. So the construction background really, it, it wasn't scaring me. So if you feel comfortable with that, you can take on a big rehab, go ahead and do it. That's where the money's made uh, with those, with the more work you need to put into it, the more money you're going to make, which is well, why we're seeing, add. yeah, this a value add. We're seeing 30, 40% returns and you did a lot of work. Um, so, uh, I ran this through the thing. I felt like this is a solid thing. I, I could take it on. I needed somebody a little bit closer to the property who could be more boots on the ground, started looking for a property manager and a partner. And because it was a joint venture, it, it was only, how much did we pay for this thing? Yeah, that was, that was my next question. What was yeah. the listing price? How much did you pay for? They were asking 385 per property. And there was no negotiating on price, none. They were cheap. The, the, the spread was amazing. We basically were buying it for the spread. So I never tried to negotiate on price. That's not true. I actually did. Cause I knew the wholesaler had a fat wholesale fee, fee in there. Uh, because in North Carolina, where the broker is from, they're required to disclose that wholesale fee. So I saw what it was. I was like, that's way too high. So I basically negotiated down to get that wholesale fee a lot lower. So we ended up paying 385, um, including her fee. So um, I just, because it wasn't expensive enough, it was under a million dollars to syndicate it. Uh, the legal fees on that tend to be in the $20,000 range or 25. Um, it just wasn't enough meat on the bone to have a bunch of investors. I needed like one partner, two partners who were gonna bring in most or all of the cash. Um, and so I went out and started raising money for it as a joint venture. Now, joint venture, you can share publicly because it's not a limited, security. it's not a security. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I just stuck it out there on LinkedIn. I just changed my LinkedIn tagline to say uh, opportunity, multifamily opportunity in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, joint venture or something like that. I don't know if I put contact me for details or something tacky like that. I don't remember exactly what I said. But people started reaching out, private message, people I'd met at conferences, people I knew from Facebook and LinkedIn, and they were saying, tell me more about it. And I put together a really nice pitch deck. And this is where your skills that you have from a previous career really come in handy. Uh, like you were saying, you were an architect. I bet that comes in really handy because when oh, you are absolutely. assessing a building, that background really informs your decision. So my background as a graphic designer, content marketer, and real estate photographer means I can put together really nice pitch decks. And so I had a beautiful pitch deck, um, as good as I could make it without taking my own photos of crappy photos that the broker sent me with his cell phone, right? <laughs> beautiful area data, maps. I did a really nice job on this pitch deck, started sending it out to people and um, raised the money for it. It was the three guys who were coming in as a single entity. And I was really excited to do business with these guys. They had massive um, multifamily construction experience, business owners. They owned um, things as limited partners, but they were really looking to get into their first large multifamily deal as general partners. And um, that's what I was looking for. Somebody who knew what they were doing and they were right on the brink who just needed the deal and a little tiny bit of mentorship. I was only one deal ahead of them. 
it wasn't like I was the gray hair on the team. Uh, so I really felt like it was a good fit. And then coronavirus hit and they were all business owners and they said, we have to preserve our cash. We cannot do this, uh, which oh, no. was really devastating because I really wanted to work with these guys. And so I told the owner, um, I don't know what's going on. Like, can we just press pause on this whole thing and let me figure out this whole coronavirus, like nobody knew what we were dealing with in March, right? I put it mm -hmm. under contract the end of January. We we're supposed to close the beginning of April. And he said, that's fine. I get it. Everybody's in the same boat. Don't worry about it. And I then I had to go back and start over again, figure out the loan, figure out new investors and all that. So that's chapter two of, of that story. So. Wow. Did you close already on it? Yeah, we just closed in June and our business plan uh, was completely different than what we originally started out with. So uh, in March, I thought about it for a couple of weeks, like what I was going to do, kept reaching out to lenders. Um, nobody was going to fund it. It was difficult and, and to find a loan on before. The, the conditions for lending were totally different, right? Now they are asking for 12 months reserves and all these requirements that you didn't have before. So your numbers totally changed as well. Well, this was just a private bridge loan because uh, we needed to do a lot of rehab on it so that they didn't really have lender reserves. They just want to see liquidity. They're not going to actually take it. They just want you to show that you have this liquidity somewhere in home equity or in a bank account or life insurance policy or wherever they will accept this liquidity in the stock market or whatnot. Um, but they're not actually going to take it and put it in an account the way that a government-backed loan will do. And so we didn't have to worry about that. The problem was, is the asset was under a million dollars, which is difficult. You can't get a small balance loan on that. Um, we were looking at small community banks. We're, we're turning it down because we didn't live in Arkansas. Um, we're just having a lot of problems with it. And the private lenders, some of them weren't even in business. They were, they, they were still going to be in business, but they just stopped answering the phones. They just were like, we are not doing any loans. And so we were getting really low LTVs. I always ask about seller financing. So I had asked him before coronavirus, would you consider carrying it? And he said he would do 75% uh, carry and some crazy low interest rate. Like, I think it was like 3%, which isn't crazy low right now, but, right. Um, but I was like, ah, I think I can do better. I think I get like an 80 or an 85% loan on this thing, bridge loan on this thing with rehab money. So I turned down the seller financing offer. But as soon as I couldn't get that kind of bridge loan money, I went back to him and I said, hey, can you seller finance this thing? I'll take your 75% and I'll just go raise more money to do the rehab. I didn't know how I was going to do that. But um, so he agreed to the seller financing at that point. And then I just had to go raise more cash. So I went back out to LinkedIn and Facebook and the same thing I did before, you know, opportunity in Little Rock for multifamily. And some of the same people that contacted me the first time, um, their deal fell through because of coronavirus. And so they were looking to place that capital. And, um, and so they basically were able to uh, place that capital into this deal instead, which was fantastic because otherwise the timing wouldn't have worked out and they were in this other deal. Um, and then somebody I met at a conference uh, introduced me to his partners and he didn't want to invest in the deal, but his partner did. And so his partner started capital raising in earnest. And he was like, he, he calls me up one day and he says, it's capital raising always like this. And I said, yeah, it's hard, man. It's a grind. And he goes, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I mean, this is amazing. I love it. If I could just wake up and do this every day, it's all I would ever do. And I was like, okay, 
I don't love capital raising. It's stressful. You lose your partners at the last minute and you're always like, hey, you want to put some money in it? And he says, that's not what it's like at all. You're offering them this amazing opportunity they didn't even know they had. And I thought, okay, dude, you are cut out for this capital raising thing. Absolutely. So he, he was loving it. And he would bring in potential capital partners. Cause like I said, we had to raise more money to, to do the rehab, um, putting them in front of me and talking about it. And he was just crazy, you know, loved it. He ended up bringing in his partner at the very end of the deal. Um, I found a hundred unit in little rock that, um, I brought to that, that group. And I said, Hey, you might not like this class D one, but how about this class B one? That's hundred units. And they were like, yeah, that we'll look at that. So we started analyzing that. We got our first backup position on it and they weren't considering uh, investing in Little Rock until that deal. And that was when they started taking a serious look at the city and realized, oh, this is a great place to invest. And um, then he took a second look at my, my little 34 unit deal. And he said, you know what? Let's just do it because this, these returns are astronomical. And I do, I do like this city, let's go for it. So he came in right at the last minute, saved the deal. Um, we ended up having to do a lease option on the property because during all of this chaos, the seller thought we weren't going to close. And so he refinanced the property and you can't transfer title when you have a brand new loan on it. Right. And so he's like, I can't transfer title. So we, I had a background in doing these lease options from my parents. I took a class on how to do it. I had lease optioned a couple of properties, uh, single families um, the year before. And so I, I knew how to do it. So I just, I called up the guy who taught me that class. And I said, have you ever done a lease option on an apartment complex before? And, and he said, no, but I know people who have, so let's talk through this. And he basically helped me figure out where the pitfalls would be and things to watch out for in the contract uh, that I added some stuff to the contract to protect our interests um, because we weren't getting title. There are some extra steps that you have to take to make sure that they don't sell it out from underneath you. So let me stop you there for a second. For people Mm -hmm. that don't know, can you explain what a lease option is? Um, It's basically when you are renting the property and you have an option to buy that property at a later date at the pre-specified price. So it's like, hey, I really like your house. I'm going to rent it. I would like to buy it for today's market value, but I need another year, maybe two years to buy it. I'll bring you a down payment right now, but I'm going to work on my mortgage or my loan financing for whatever reason, I can't get a loan right now. Um, and they say, sure. So it's two different, it's two different deals. Basically it's a lease deal that you're going to just live in there like a tenant. Um, but then it's also an option deal where you have an option to buy it and it's pre-negotiated terms to purchase it. So in this case, we would call it a master lease option because I'm leasing it, but then I'm going to have the right to go sublease that out to tenants. I'm not going to live in it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the occupant. So we did the master lease where we have obviously have the right to sublease. It's an apartment complex. Of course, we're going to sublease, but sometimes in a house, they won't let you, they make you live in it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to sell on a lease option. I have um, several tenants in some of my single family houses and, and even in a duplex who are buying the property for me. They're renting it until they can get their mortgage. Um, one guy, uh, two guys actually, they did such a great job as tenants um, and they still couldn't get a mortgage because they're self-employed or whatnot. So you guys were such great tenants. I'm just going to go ahead and transfer title to you and I'll carry your note 
So I have a 10 year note on those properties. And so I just ended up converting the lease option to a seller financing deal with that. I'm the owner on an, I carry that note. So because I'd done it as a seller, I was able to then go approach the seller on this apartment complex and say, Hey, here's something that I do. And here's a way we can make this deal work if you're up for it. And at this point, in the middle of coronavirus, nobody else is banging down his door to buy these things, even though they were smoking deal. It's class D, needed some work, right? And the lending situation and the price of the properties, it just, it wasn't like he had any other offers. And so he said, sure, you know, he was creative and, and worked with us. So we just bought it basically on a master lease option. And those kinds of techniques, those creative techniques become more common uh, when you have downturns in the economy, when it turns into a buyer's market instead of a seller's market, uh, because the seller's just like, whatever we need to do to get this thing sold. And so they start looking at creative offers a lot more than they would when they have 16 people clamoring to pay over full price. So the traditional rules that you may have learned during a seller's market um, might go out the window the numbers no longer work and you can get a lot more creative because people are willing to have those conversations when they weren't before. Absolutely. So what's the, the uh, exit strategy that you are planning to implement on this uh, property? Are you keeping it for long-term? Are you selling it? Um, I think it's important when you have a property that you have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and a plan D all the way down to plan Z because anything can and will happen. So our plan A is to keep it long-term as a cash flowing asset. So we are offering um, private notes um, to individuals and we are personally guaranteeing those notes as a ownership group to raise the rehab money um, to get these done. And so we have a couple more investors that have notes uh, with us as the LLC. And then as that money comes in, we're rehabbing. So um, we have raised maybe $100,000 that way, and we could do maybe another $100,000. Um, then we're working on refinancing it into a construction loan. And as soon as that happens, then we'll transfer title and, and it'll be in our name. But in the meantime, while we're waiting to get that loan, because still not that easy, um, we're trying to get the net operating income up, which is basically the, uh, the get the revenue a lot higher and get our expenses down. So it looks like we're making a lot more money because we've made nicer apartments, we're charging a lot more rent, um, and then it's gonna look better to a lender. So the higher we can get that income, the better loan we're gonna get. So the more renovations we can do before we apply for that loan, the better. So that's why we're doing the private notes. So that's another creative way of raising money. We didn't wanna erode the returns by bringing in another partner because if you think debt's expensive, try a partner. They're going to want a huge chunk. So while debt is more risky because you got to pay it on time, right? Debt's a lot more risky. A partner absorbs the risk with you. Um, debt is a lot cheaper. Even at 10, 12%, debt's cheaper than a partner. So we decided to go the debt route to raise the rest of that money so that we could keep those returns um, in that high range. Now we went ahead and we kind of redid our business plan of much faster rehab uh, because we were raising that money. And our rents were way too low on the pro forma. We realized that we could do a better rehab and push those rents even higher. So the, the returns on this deal we're projecting are gonna be somewhere in the 55 to 60% returns. Wow. I have not seen anything even close to approaching that just because we had such a great spread on the front end and the rents um, were so much higher than we realized that they 
that they could be mm -hmm. um, because we thought the owner had renovated half the units already. But when we got in there and did our inspections, we're like, these are not renovated. These are still, they couldn't even qualify for um, public housing, like section eight inspections. They couldn't, they couldn't even pass. So it was basically just people in there who couldn't pass a background check. And we all know what kind of tenants you inherit when they are not able. There's like, oh yeah, here's, here's the warning sign right here. When they tell you the property is a cash cow, it means that they have raped and pillaged the village and have not put any money into it. It's got tons of deferred maintenance. So cash cow equals deferred maintenance. It means super expensive rehab. So watch out for when people tell you that. The second thing is, is when they say things like, oh, we don't even advertise. We just have a waiting list of people, especially <laughs> if it's a low end property. That's because they'll take anybody if you can walk in there with cash in your hand. And that's why people make so much money on D-class properties and running them in, in such an inhumane way is because they're always over there knocking on their doors, collecting like, hey, you know, when's your cousin bringing the rent by? Um, they're willing to do things that I'm not willing to do to collect that rent. I don't want to run a D-class property. So we're just basically cleaning it out. Everybody has to pass a background check now. We're fixing it up. We're making so that it can actually pass inspections if we want to put section eight people in there. So those are the two big warning flags right there. How do you get your tenants? If they're like, oh no, we don't have background checks or any of that. You know what you're dealing with. You yeah. better be ready to well, clean it As up. long as they are on a month-to-month -month basis, then you can just take over and replace those tenants. But if they have contracts, long-term contracts, and they are non-qualified tenants, then that's where you have problems. Well, even on a month-to-month -month basis, you give them 60 days notice um they don't leave you still have to um you evict still them. have to evict them yeah mm -hmm. because if they refuse to leave there's nothing that you can do um to force them out you have to go through the eviction process um arkansas is the wild west with tenant law which is another reason i really like investing there i think it's the only state in the entire country where the landlord is not required to provide habitable housing it's crazy it's crazy <laughs> and these things were not habitable when we got in there, there was sewer water leaking in from the bathroom upstairs into the kitchens downstairs because oh, the no. cast, the cast iron pipes, uh, where the, where the, the um, P traps were, were rusted out. And that water, every time they flush a toilet or take a bath was kind of leaking into the drywall. That was what we were dealing with. There's no reason, no reason when the rents can be pushed $200 a month that people need to be living in those kind of conditions. Uh, the problem is, is now they can't afford the new rent. So there's a, there's a social component that really, that I haven't learned how to, to deal with, um, where these people who are leaving have nowhere else to go. They can't pass a background check. They can't afford to live there once you've fixed it up. And so that's been something I've been putting a lot of thought into because this is the second, well, the third apartment complex where we're dealing with this problem. Um, and just starting to get involved with some of the nonprofits in the area to make sure that they have a place to go, they have a, a safety net of some sort, because it's not my job and my business to be running a place where these people can live for free. But I do feel like it is part of my civic and social duty to figure out what happens to them on the other side when they're evicted or when, when they're given notice, where do they go? And it's I, to say, oh, it's not my problem where they go. It's everybody's problem where they go. And so an opportunity to look into those options and get involved in affordable housing and get involved in nonprofits um, is is something that I think we as as tenant uh, we as landlords um, have an obligation to get involved in. So that's I'm at the beginning of my journey with that right now. 
Awesome. All right. That, that is an amazing deal and an amazing story packed with so many different strategies, right? Like you had, you know, the, you know, doing a JV, you know, a capital raise with notes, uh, you know, the seller financing with the lease option, you know, so, so many things that you've done, very, very creative uh, to get the job done. So super excited about hearing that story. So what are you reading these days? Tell me about a book or an audiobook that you are listening to. Um, well, my partner on that deal, John Stober, uh, just wrote an ebook, um, How to Analyze uh, Big Apartment Deals and Make Them Look Small. And so I'm starting to read that because uh, his way of underwriting uh, is surgical and he eats the stuff for breakfast. He loves it. And so he's helping me take my underwriting to the next level. Like I said, it's never going to be my superpower. It's never going to be something that I love doing. I don't ever want to eat it for any meal. It's just not <laughs> something I, I like, right? But I need to be able to do it. We were uh, showing a deal to some people recently where one of the partners said, I don't want to look at any of the underwriting. And I thought, well, I don't want to do a deal with somebody who doesn't want to look at any of the underwriting. You have to understand what you're looking at. There's a financial managerial aspect that even if somebody else is doing the underwriting, you need to be able to read it. You need to be able to understand if what's coming out of that makes sense, if the business plan is sound. The only way you're going to learn how to do that is by at least doing some of it yourself for a while. Whether you're doing the only underwriter on a deal, that's not important, but you need to be doing your own underwriting, verifying their underwriting, understanding their underwriting. So for example, um, the partner on this Little Rock deal, uh, who was not the underwriter, the, these two guys are partners together. Um, he didn't know how to underwrite a deal when we first started this Little Rock project together. But I told him, I said, I'm no expert in this. You need to do your own verification. And I made everybody who wanted to partner on that deal go and do their own underwriting. And he came back and he said, well, let's work through this together. You can teach me how to do this. We spent hours on video calls running this through. And so when his partner, John came into the deal and he just finished this audio book and he has a spreadsheet that goes along, sorry, ebook, he has a spreadsheet that goes along with it. I realized I could really take this to the next level. And so he's been um, building a couple of spreadsheets for the super simple first pass for the medium level. And then uh, the surgical level for the expert, you know, the lead underwriter to take. And so that's been highly educational, eye-opening experience um, to make me a better business person because the focus of my business really right now is getting better and faster at the underwriting so that I can get more deals through the pipeline. Absolutely. And, you know, people make mistakes, right? So you need to be able to verify because, you know, they can do an honest mistake and all the numbers are off. And then mm -hmm. you, if you don't know how to verify that, analyze it, then you get into a deal that wasn't as profitable as you thought. Uh, so that you, you, you don't need to be an expert, but you need to understand it and be able to to catch mistakes. Yep. All right. So tell me about your productivity hack. This is something that you have implemented in your business that is taking you to the next level. I finally hired someone. I am so cheap, cheap. I want to run lean. I do not want to be a business owner. I actually want to just be a passive investor. And so staying lean is very important to me. Um, I just have no aspirations to be running any kind of employees or an operation where I go into an office every day that none of that appeals to me at all. And so um, hiring has been very difficult to me. I feel like 
in order to grow, you need to be able to take on things that increase your costs, but then you have to grow so that you can support those costs. It's this nasty cycle. And I've always been very against um, hiring. So I brought on an accounting student. She's actually my daughter's uh, college roommate. I asked my daughter, I said, do you know any accounting students that I can interview to hire to do my bookkeeping and help me with early stage underwriting? And she's actually, my new roommate's an accounting student. So uh, we met, she came and spent the weekend with us at her house. And I trained her up in how to do QuickBooks and how to do this, this a simple spreadsheet. Um, she's been great. So she's saving me a lot of time. Um, I only have to get in my QuickBooks maybe once a month now. I don't want to totally hand it over. Um, I just need somebody to do kind of the data entry, the tedious mm -hmm. stuff. Um, I still need to, again, have a hand in that. Uh, I learned how to do QuickBooks and I learned how to do my own accounting. I actually hired an accountant, like my CPA, uh, to teach me how to do it last year been doing it myself all this time and now it's time to turn over some of those tasks to an intern so again you have to know how to keep a handle on these processes in your business but that doesn't mean you need to do it all by yourself all the time forever absolutely i totally agree with that uh, i had a friend of mine help me with the with the accounting as well and it was such a weight off my shoulders to know that I don't have to input those credit card chargers every month into my yeah. computer. Like I still want to see what's going on and the numbers because she does make mistakes. You know, she doesn't have all the information necessarily. So it's good to know how to do it, but then, you know, delegate it to somebody else when you mm -hmm. can spend your time on better tasks. And that came in really handy because on the same deal that we just did the deep dive into John's perfect example, he has a double major in accounting and finance. And his main job is as an analyst for a large company. Um, and I said, well, who's doing our bookkeeping? And everybody's like, oh, I don't know. Nobody knows how to, I was the only one who knew how to do, to, to do this type of bookkeeping because we were doing it on our other apartment complex. And I was doing it in my business for my small rentals. And um, well, John said, we need a VA to do this. And I said, well, John, let me teach you how to, to do the QuickBooks part of it. I mean, you'll learn this in 10 minutes, right? This is, this is a, small time for you right and so we went through and we just set up our own our own accounting system internally and john's been taking care of that and now john's good at it. like i said it took him 10 minutes to figure out how to do it and he doesn't like doing it again he loves underwriting he hates bookkeeping um he doesn't love everything financial but he combs through all the uh, property managers reports and he makes sure he understands and he's like oh wait you know you overcharged us here oh wait you didn't give us the refund that you said there and catches all those kinds of things and then now that he's very comfortable in the bookkeeping is when he can bring on the va and make sure that he really understands it and he can keep an eye on her so it'll save him time but he did it himself for long enough that he really feels confident that he can get a handle on it just by reviewing the reports instead of doing it himself. Absolutely. Expert tips. All right. So now we have to, we come to the part of the show where you're going to share with me three expert tips. So um, Emma is going to share three expert tips on underwriting. All right. The first tip is your first pass through the underwriting process doesn't even involve a spreadsheet. You have to know what you're looking for, what type of asset that you're willing to do, what area that you wanna be in, um, doing your market research, knowing what the numbers are that you're looking for and being able to 
throw deals out before you waste time even combing through them. So I would recommend taking Neil Bawa's uh, free course on Udemy on how to analyze a market. Pick three to five markets that you're going to specialize in, maybe your backyard, maybe not, um, because it, it meets your criteria and figure out what those are. Now, there are a couple of markets that I would really love to invest in because they put up great numbers on the demographics, but they're too competitive. And so I stay out of those. And so I was looking for markets that weren't like A++ markets. I'm looking for like kind of below that. So AI yeah, can still get great deals, but not everybody and their dog is shopping there. So that's that's my tip. Start out with your market and know the type of property you're looking for. I do large multifamily. I do class D that can be raised up or class C that can be raised up. Um, and then you don't break out the spreadsheet until it's met at least those minimum thresholds. So that's tip number one. Awesome. Tip number two is when you finally do break out the spreadsheet, um, there should only be about six or seven points that you're combing through the offering memorandum looking for. And so I'll pull out the offering memorandum and I'll highlight those first. Um, it was just on my computer with my little um, PDF highlighter. Open it up. I find those first. And then uh, on, my, on my spreadsheet, if you have your inputs all over and you're on different tabs, try to bring those inputs into a single sheet so that when you're going through the offering memorandum, you can input, 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 input. And it saves you a ton of time and makes underwriting not so tedious. Mm -hmm. And you know exactly what you're looking for. So it's more of an assembly line approach. Mm -hmm. And then my third tip is to bake in a couple of assumptions. Um, for example, a bridge loan at 8% with interest-only payments for two years uh, with a 25% amortization and a 75% loan to value, maybe right now 70%. But just bake those in and just leave those in your spreadsheet and see what happens. Um, maybe 55 to $7,500 of renovation per unit. Um, I go with a little bit lower. I don't wanna kill the deal too early. I want it to make it through screening so I can take a more detailed look at it. Automation, is this is, could be called automation, can sometimes kill something too early. Now, when it gets out of the automated stage and I'm gonna do actual research and put in actual numbers, yes, then I will try to kill it. But in stage one, stage two, um, try to keep your numbers pretty liberal. Um, it's kind of the opposite of what we normally would recommend. Get these deals through screening and then see if you have something there to work with. If you don't, go ahead and kill it and drop it, but don't kill it too early. Bake in these assumptions, make them fairly friendly. And then all you have to do is those seven point check or six point check, and it'll pop out a number for you. And you'll know if it's worth sending on to um, the next level of underwriting where you're actually going to have to go run rental comps. And I just assume like a hundred dollar a month rent bump, uh, standard bridge loan terms, you know, things like that. I don't do any research on that. Um, if it looks good there. That's close enough to my thresholds. Then I'll go do actual research. All right. So those are awesome tips to save a lot of time when you're underwriting before you get into the nitty gritty of underwriting, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you're like me and you don't really like doing it. Um, I procrastinate. And so uh, making it a little bit more efficient. Um, one more tip. I'll give you a bonus fourth tip. Um, I got an extra monitor and I plug my laptop in. So I've got the offering memorandum on one screen and I've got the spreadsheet on another screen. And so just having more than one monitor, so you're not constantly flipping back and forth. It's the same concept of not having your inputs on lots of different tabs, trying to get your inputs onto its own tab. Um, the more flipping back and forth you have to do, the longer it's going to take, the more you're going to dread it, the more you're going to procrastinate it. 
Absolutely. All right, Emma, this was an amazing episode full of, you know, incredible advice. Where can people find you online? Um, I love social media. So I'm, I, you can find me on LinkedIn and Facebook at Emma Powell 28. Um, I use all the private messages in LinkedIn and Facebook very often. So I'm easy to find there. Um, my, my website is a high rise dot group. And there we talk more about multifamily real estate. Um, I have links to all the other interviews that I've done. And I also have a Facebook group you can join called Passive Cash Flow with Real Estate. And that's where we match people up who have cash that they want to invest with active deal sponsors with deals that they're looking for money. I think that uh, there's an abundance mindset with real estate with everything except capital. People are like, ooh, this is my capital partner and this is my private money partner. And they don't want to tell you how they raise money or where they go because there's a little bit of a scarcity mindset there. So I wanted to create a community where people with money and people with deals can get together. You can put money in my deal, you can put money in someone else's deal. Maybe I don't have something right now. Maybe somebody else does. Maybe my deal is not a good fit for you, but somebody else does. Let's all just get together and talk about real estate. And the more money everybody makes and the more community we can have, the more we can get done, the more money people make and the more money they might have to put in my deal later on. So that is a passive cash flow uh, real estate investing Facebook group. Awesome. I have to join that group. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, if you don't have something at the moment and you have an investor that wants to invest, why not, you know, let them know of another opportunity because they are going to appreciate that knowing that you are losing that uh, deal. But if you, you cannot help them at the moment, you know, connect them to somebody, somebody else that can help them. Yep. So, all right. This was amazing. Thank you so much. And if you like this uh, episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the channel and to give us a like and share the episode. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. This was Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Talee, brought to you by Talee Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.